Welcome to the New Books Network. If there are two social issues which define our age, they're probably race and gender, both of the subject of not just passionate but increasingly angry debate and grievances about discrimination go deep. They're not simple issues and it's an area, both are areas, into which many fear to tread, but not our guest today, who's been a significant voice in the debate, particularly around race. Professor John McWhorter teaches linguistics, American studies and music history. We'll talk about that amazing range later at Columbia University. And you can get an idea of his approach from the title of his latest book. It's called Woke Racism, How a New Religion Has Portrayed Black America. Hello, Professor. Hi. Uh, That's a very strong title. Well, it's it's meant, and it's not meant just to sell books. I really do think that we have witnessed, in the same way as many Romans would have witnessed with Christianity, we're witnessing the birth of a religion. And often when a religion is born, people aren't thinking about it as, quote unquote, a religion. They think of it as a truth. And we're seeing that. And what it means is that we're not just seeing people with a set of sociopolitical beliefs. We're seeing people who think they've settled upon an inviolable and impregnable truth system. And it's why these things are getting so difficult. So we'll talk about what you mean by woke racism exactly a little later. But first, I know you have thought about the history of anti-racism. And you've got three waves of it. You've categorized it that way. So can you just take us through that? The first wave of anti-racism was... Well, the first wave is anti-racism where you're fighting against actual segregation and voter disfranchisement. So we're talking about stark injustice that virtually nobody living would consider to be anything but injustice. So first wave anti-racism is the now classic civil rights efforts, which largely end in the 1960s. Then there's second wave anti-racism, which was just as important, although it was more under the radar. And that was the idea that not only should black people not be barred from certain jobs and barred from voting, but black people should be seen psychologically, spiritually as the equal of whites. And so it's in the 70s and the 80s that It becomes, for example, the most embarrassing thing that an American can be accused of to be accused of being a racist. That feels very normal now to anybody, I think, about 60 and younger. But that would seem very new to people who were living in a time that wasn't that different from ours. And so that second wave anti-racism, learn not to be a racist yourself as opposed to what's going on in society. Third wave anti-racism is what has people so confused. And third wave anti-racism is this new idea that to be white is to be complicit in racism at all times and that you should carry a certain guilt with you to your grave, that to be black is for your defining trait to be being a victim at the hands of this oppression from the white ruling class, and that all of society should be based on a quest to undo this manifestation of racism in a much more abstract sense. That's the third wave. And and just pin down for us the phrase woke racism. <laughs> woke is in itself a good thing. Woke settled in in the United States about six years ago as a friendly term for having a certain kind of left wing enlightened take on how the world and how the United States really works. But there's a kind of wokeness that sanctions being mean 
in the name of it. I'm not against wokeness. I'm against wokeness when it comes with being nasty and seeking to destroy people's lives because you think that they're not sufficiently woke. And the problem with all of this is that woke people, there is a subset of woke people today who think of themselves as fighting on behalf of black people, when what they're really doing is they're showing that they're not racist and enshrining that as the main goal as opposed to actually changing the lives of people who suffer from racism. And often they're willing to harm black people in the name of this virtue signaling where your job is to show not that you have faith in Jesus, but in this religion, what your job is, is to show that you are not a racist person. We'll talk about your comparison with religion in a moment, but just before that, what sort of harms, can you give us an example of the sort of harms you're talking about there? Well, for example, let's say that you notice that black kids don't do as well on standardized tests as other kids. Now, there are reasons for that that could be fixed. If what you want to show is that you're not a racist, then what you say is that the test is racist and it must go. Next thing you know, you're exempting black kids from having to take standardized tests by getting rid of them, and therefore shielding them from something that would be useful as they go on in life to do other things. And more to the point, you're setting up an entire atmosphere, and we're seeing that atmosphere begin already, in which it's thought that it's wrong to subject black people to tests of cognitive ability. It's wrong to expect black people to be exact in getting the answers to things. There actually is a non-racist math that's getting around serious-minded educators in this country where the idea is to not expect black kids to actually get the answer, but just to circle around it. And in general, you get an idea that white people are linear thinkers and black people are holistic thinkers, which is awfully close to saying that black people just aren't as quick on the uptake as white people. So in the name of calling things racist that black people happen not to be as good at because of historical conditions and that black people's not being good at it can be fixed. Instead, you say that the thing is racist, you eliminate it, you wave a flag showing that you're not a racist. But in the meantime, you leave black people in the muck. Now then, you have compared this to a religion. Tell us what features of this uh, third wave of anti-racism is, to your mind, like a religion. Well, there are a great many features. One of them, for example, is that the way white privilege is spoken of at this point is original sin. The idea is that to be white is to harbor a privilege. And it doesn't matter what kind of white life you're leading. You could be a very poor white person, but you still have privilege. It's as if this is a quality that's extremely intangible and abstract, such as original sin, which you have no matter what a nice person you may or may not be. And the idea is that you are white privileged until you die and that you can never not be. You can never get beyond it, and you should never shed your guilt for being white privileged. All of this is alarmingly close to original sin, but more to the point, where the religious aspect of this becomes most interesting and most harmful is that it's part of the religions that most of us are familiar with that, to an extent, you have to suspend disbelief. A religion is usually not based completely on empirical, uh, empirically observable phenomena. There's an extent to which you have to believe in a certain kind of magic where you have to let logic go in the name of being part of this faith. In this religion, for example, that means that if there is a black man who lives in a distressed community, he is at much more danger of being killed by someone else who lives in the community because of turf wars and gang wars and the like than he is by a stray white cop who makes a mistake. 
Yet, there is huge publicity given to every case where a black man is killed by a white cop, and no coverage at all given to the usual cases where that same person, except different, is killed senselessly by somebody from his own context. That's something that will make, you know, one story in the local newspaper. It's not considered as important. Now, why is it that we pay so much more attention to the white cop killing the very occasional black man somewhere, as opposed to the endemic problem of black men killing each other in the hundreds in every big city in the United States every summer? There is no logical reason that an unbiased observer would see that as making any sense. It does make sense under this religion, though, where what your job is is to show racism. You're supposed to identify it. You're supposed to show that racism exists. Because you can see racism in the way these white cops interact with these black men, that logically, automatically, within the bounds of the religion, becomes what's more important to talk about than the many, many more murders, often much more brutal, that we see in these communities happening between these black men. Wouldn't that be a problem that we would have this helicopter urgent orientation towards solving? If we rolled the tape backward and just played everything again, certainly we would. The religion means that we pay attention to the thing that hurts black people much less than something else that is much harder to ascribe to racism. Now, you also talk about other comparisons with religion, the evangelicalism, the heretics, and even an apocalyptic vision. Yeah, one of the things that can seem most irrational about the way these kinds of people behave, and especially since last year, is the idea that if you are not woke enough, you have to go, that you're supposed to lose your job, you're supposed to be suspended from teaching your classes, that you're supposed to leave polite society, essentially. People watch how someone will use a term improperly, how someone will give somebody a little bit of a hard time and then be treated as if they were one of the police officers who were beating black children in the streets in Birmingham. And the general idea is if this person writes the wrong thing, they must be fired. They have to go. All of that, again, makes perfect logical sense within the system of a religion, even if the people in question don't think of themselves as religious. It's heresy. The idea is you get rid of the heretic. You ban the heretic. You don't want that person in your midst because the heretic will pollute you with their lack of faith, for example. Except in this case, the heretic will pollute you with their lack of commitment to displaying that they know what racism is in every way all the time. So it explains it perfectly. You are revolted by the presence of someone who does not share your religious perspective and that which is evil. And so we've gone to the point where people aren't just woke. Woke is fine, but there's a kind of woke person who battles heretics. And in this, they're no different from medievals. The sorts of things that seem so bizarre in us when we read about what Europeans did to each other in the 14 and 1500s, we're seeing it again with people with lattes and cell phones. It's the exact same spirit. It's just the language is different. As you know better than anyone, lots of people disagree with this. And you've had a lot of public debate on these issues. When you've faced opponents who take a different view, what is the best argument they have made against you? Which is the argument that you think, hmm, got a bit of a point there? What a wonderful question. That's really, that's good. That's the way I try to think of things and don't always succeed. I think, to be honest, I find these issues relatively easy. There are many that aren't, but 
the fact that a certain brand of wokeness has gone beyond what most reasonable people would consider to be any kind of social justice, despite what they call it, that's not hard. And I don't find that I get a whole lot of coherent pushback against that basic point. I think it's just a matter of observation. It's not coming from any kind of politics. But there are people who say that, yes, some of these things go on, but it isn't a major threat. These things are not happening to most people. Most people are unaffected by this push from the hyper-woke. And what we should really be afraid of is the ultra-right, especially the racist right, who would go as far as to storm the Capitol and who have these ominous groups that are gathering online where some of them seem to be planning some sort of armed insurrection. I am not convinced by that argument that our real threat is from the right, including that censorship from the right is a stronger threat than censorship from the left. But nevertheless, it is a valid point, especially if somebody says, for example, that if the right wants to stop the left from talking about critical race theory, well, the way our country is configured politically, they can come up with bills that will actually officially prescribe schools from teaching certain things in state congresses. That is not something that's happening on the left to nearly such an extent. But because I'm a culture person, and because I'm on the ground, and because I'm in academia, and because I write for the media, and frankly, because I'm awake, I find it hard to get beyond a sense that, at best, we're talking about equal threats. It's the right and the left, because the left is really threatening what thinking people's culture in the United States is going to be. And if that sounds like it doesn't matter because it's just a small intelligentsia, I cannot imagine that being an objection made in most European countries to say who cares about the intelligentsia and what people think and what they teach to the world. No, I I think it's significant. But people who say that they're more worried about the right, I cannot reject that as nonsense. I think it's a, I find it a mistaken point, but then part of it is just what matters to a person more and opinions will differ. And do you find that your arguments are used by the right to justify their positions? Sometimes. Can't help it. Because the response to that is, am I therefore not supposed to say the things that I say? And if I said, I'm saying this, but I do not mean to encourage the excesses from the militant right, they're going to use my opinions anyway. And given a choice between that imperfection and keeping my own counsel and not saying anything and watching America's thinking culture be destroyed... I'll take the latter. Life isn't perfect. Now then, if I were to put to you some of the most glaring examples often quoted, which those who believe in structural racism would say are you know, very pressing and very real, I'd l- like your response to them. And so, so they're obvious. They're things like the number of uh, black men in prisons in America, the number of black children suspended from school, uh, those are real issues, and people would say many people would say they are explained by structural racism. What, what's your view? Yeah, structural racism is a very potent term because the word racism is in it. And when you pull the camera back, those things are real problems. But the issue is, what do you do about them? And what you do about them is certainly not try to reform people's inner psychology so that they're not racist. The causal link between that and too many black boys being suspended from school is so jagged and so abstract that I don't think anybody would suggest that we waste time in that way. The issue is, why 
are so many black boys suspended from school. And the reason is, as anybody who's been on the scene at all knows, that black boys tend to commit more violent acts in school than any other kind of boy. That is simply the truth, and you can find it statistically. Are some black boys punished a little more than their white equivalents would be for the same thing? There is some of that, but only some. The actual data on this is very clear. I actually lay out that issue in the book. The issue is why are the boys more violent in school? And the issue there is poverty and often growing up without fathers. Why is that? Well, one thing that you could fix, as opposed to trying to make all white people not racist, is the war on drugs. The war on drugs takes fathers away from kids. The war on drugs leaves people poor because it discourages you from getting legal employment as opposed to, you know, getting by by hoping to make a big score in drugs, even though nobody really does. So I've been for a very long time a passionate advocate to get rid of the war on drugs, not out of some libertine or libertarian sense, but because that's behind a lot of the structural racism problems that we hear about where you think, well, okay, we have to get rid of the racism. But that often doesn't mean anything in terms of what you would do, putting on your clothes, leaving your house and doing something. How do you get rid of the racism, especially when it's abstract? What you need is solutions to make people's lives better. If poverty, even if it's due to racism in the past and some racism in the present, is why more black boys commit more violent acts in school, which they do, well, then it's time to address what makes them poor. And what makes them poor is not, again, racism that you can go out and fight. Go find it. Where's the racism to fight? What does that mean other than good rhetoric? You go address the policies that make those boys poor, such as the war on drugs. So that's my answer. In the book, there is a chapter about what I consider solutions to be. My job is not just to sit and complain and you know do some bullet points about how people just need to listen to each other, etc. That's not it. There are problems that need to be solved. But we will not solve them by having white people sit around in circles attesting to their white privilege. That does nobody any favors, including them. Why do you believe woke racism exists? Woke racism exists because all of us like group membership. All of us like having a reason to be alive. All of us like having something that shows that we're good people. All of us need a hug in a way. Woke racism comes from a kind of wokeness where what you're seeking is to show that you're a good person and to get props and reinforcement from fellow minded thinkers that you are a good person. And also, and this is a byproduct of how prescribed racist attitudes have become, you wish to show that you're not a racist because it chills you to think that you might be one. There you go. However, all of that is ultimately kind of self-centered and therefore very tempting. It's a very tempting kind of warm cloak. And so you can think that you're doing something for black people by not being racist. It's easy to think that. But your camera is pulled so far in that you forget that there are actual people suffering who couldn't care less about the subtle contours of your inner feelings. The issue is going out and engaging in grassroots activism, no matter how slow, frustrating or boring, because that is what actually changes lives. So woke racism is not deliberate. Nobody has set out to be a woke racist, but it's time to frame it that way. Because when you, for example, look at the number of black boys being suspended from schools and say, well, this is because of bias against them, when it isn't, what happens is that in those systems, they stop suspending violent black boys as much. And you know who the black boys beat up? Other black boys and sometimes black girls, not to mention the teachers. So 
you get to parade your non-racism by saying there's bigotry against black boys and enjoy that I just used three B sounds in a row. It's all great rhetoric. But then in the meantime, it means that you're destroying the education of the black kids that those boys go to school with. Nobody should be under any impression that the black boys being suspended in cases like that are in mostly white schools and giving these white kids their just desserts. That's what I think some leftists think. No, most of those black boys are in black schools hurting other black people. Woke racism to support the whole literature that says that it's just a matter of bigotry against black boys. So let me ask, I think you sort of answered it in some ways, but let me ask the question this way. Uh, Many of those who are what you would describe as woke racists would say they are motivated by anger and grievance. To what extent do you believe that is correct? I mean, that there are some grievances and uh, there is anger about them. So how much racism is there? Well, it has to be understood that you may be very angry at structural inequities in society that make it so that black people have the short end of the stick. You should be angry about that. But the question is what you do about it. You're misled if you think that what you do about it is cherish a religion where your main job is to show something about yourself as opposed to doing something for other people. And if you're thinking that showing something about yourself is some kind of prelude to doing something for other people, you need to think about whether you really mean it. And so somebody uses the word reverse racism and you don't like it and you help get them fired. That actually happened to a curator at the San Francisco Modern Museum of Modern Art not long ago. You do that because nobody should use the word reverse racism. What does that have to do with a black person living on the street? So you're angry and you channel your anger into kabuki, into virtue signaling. You should realize that as satisfying as that might be, a person like you who was angry 50 years ago channeled it into trying to do real things. We should go back to what they did. Yeah, but you are saying there is some reason to be angry. Oh, of course. Society needs to be changed. That's the interesting thing. I am not making a right-wing message that everybody needs to pull up their own bootstraps and just behave. That that's, would not be constructive. That would be a really simplistic way of looking at a society. Of course, there are reasons to be upset about how many black people are suffering through no fault of their own. I just question the woke racist approach to dealing with that, which is more about them than about the people. And, and, it, and it is important just to uh, ask you to explain one aspect of this that you are worried about, which is that you think woke racism is disempowering for many blacks. It very much is, because the general idea is that the most interesting thing a black person does is explain why black people can't do things. Or it's the idea that the most interesting thing about being black is how white people don't see you or how white people do see you or how they don't see you enough. That black identity is mostly about looking balefully at white people and figuring out how you're going to cope. I don't believe that those are the only ways that a person can be black in today's modern American society. I think they are siren calls because the black side of woke racism is that to be black is to be a victim. You're encouraged to think of that victimhood as the most interesting thing about you to the point that you're supposed to preach black disempowerment. And we're so used to that, especially after about the past 50 years, that we forget that there's possibly no other group in human history where the message 
when history has given us the short end of the stick is we can't do any better than this until the society turns upside down in the way it does things and in the way its members think. That's very modern. It's very new. And some people will object. Nobody said that. And the issue is not whether anybody puts it in those words. It's whether that is the upshot of all the calls that are made. And it is. Our idea is we cannot succeed under these conditions. Society must change. Whereas it used to be society is imperfect, but how much is it likely to change? We're going to do our best regardless. There seems to be an idea that when it comes to the descendants of African slaves, matters are different, or maybe something about automation and then computer technology at the end of the 20th century. Somehow it's different just for descendants of African slaves in modern American society. No one has ever explained to me how. I think that we've just been taught to accept a defeatist message such as, well, we don't do as well on tests, so let's get rid of the test, as opposed to the way it would have been 60 years ago, which was, we're not doing as well on the test, let's get better at the test and show them. Now that's just, unfashionable. Just to push back a bit on that um, point about this being a new and specific thing. I mean, I think the argument's been made that Muslims internationally feel this way. They feel a sense of victimhood, which um, you know, some commentators have said uh, is unhelpful to their cause, rather as you're saying. Yeah, and notice when that sense of being a Muslim kicked in. All of this is a way of looking at race ideology or just ideology of those on top versus those on the bottom that I hate to say the post-civil rights movement with black people in the United States of America provided a model for and now has been taken up by other groups to cherish a sense of yourself as victim for that to become your main sense of identity is something that's it's interesting. Nobody who's under extreme violence, extreme pressure, actual day-to-day threat of existence from a relentless foe, nobody cherishes that sense of themselves as a victim. Everybody knows that it would be unhealthy, that you have to have a sense of yourself as a victor, as a fighter. The idea that we are most interesting as victims tends to come in when situation the situation has become much more complex and assigning blame is much more difficult. And that's what goes on here in the United States. So do you feel that a lot of your arguments are actually quite pragmatic? You're just saying, look, uh, as well as the rights and wrongs of this, it's just a, a practical matter as to how best to achieve objectives. Yep. I consider this practicality important. I think many people are more, um, more people are more idealist. They think that the new idea really should be that a society turns upside down in all of its procedures and thought processes, and that this will be fair to subordinate groups. I'm open to that argument in the abstract, but I don't see it as a very useful political program for black people in the here and now. And part of the reason for that is that that preachment has been going on now since the late 1960s. And look how little fruit it's really born. There's certain things about American society that are going to stay just the way they are, including that some people are going to be quietly racist. That doesn't mean that black people can't be the best that we can be. We're only told that that's what it means. Can I ask you how much trouble you've had because of your views? Not anything thing that I would call trouble. I mean, for some people, you know, having mean things said about you on Twitter would be trouble, but I've been dealing with the equivalent of that for over 
20 years. Um, I may be speaking too soon after this book comes out. I might find that I'm in trouble. But to tell you the truth, I seem to be allowed a place at the table in the mainstream media at this point. I haven't been blackballed yet. I genuinely feel that my views are not radical. I had the views of a middle-of-the-road person who considers himself a good liberal Democrat. I've never voted Republican. I am not a conservative. I am not right-wing, but that just cannot countenance being told that I'm a white supremacist, me, black of all people, because I'm not hard leftist enough. That won't do. The charge is invalid. It's unfair. It's mean. And it's often nonsensical. And somebody needs to say it. And if I can say it, and the charge of me being a white supremacist doesn't stick as well because of some obvious things about my skin color, well, then all the better, because I need our society to get braver about telling these people in question not to leave the room, but just to sit back down. We all need to sit at the table and exchange ideas. We cannot let these religious idealists tell us how we're going to live our lives any more than any of us should tell them how they're going to live their lives. We have to do this together. And the elect, as I call these people, have learned from our cowardice in not standing up to them that they can have things completely their way. And they've developed a sense of themselves as a religious movement, although they don't call it that. They think they found the truth. And so Rousseau didn't, Kant didn't, Kierkegaard didn't. These people think they found the truth. It's painfully obvious to all of us that they haven't. And we need to be brave enough to tell them. And when they call us white supremacists on Twitter, we have to just let it blow by. I do want to ask you about your astonishing range of uh, sort of teaching efforts and academic research and so on activity. Uh, Music, uh, linguistics, uh, politics, social science. I I, I presume you're you're against over-specialization. (laughs) What I am is obsessive and I don't sleep enough. And, you know, I'm interested in stuff. I'm, I'm I'm a product of Montessori schools. To me, the world is a buffet and I'm trying to enjoy it. And then I have a certain kind of person telling me that I'm supposed to be focused only on trying to overturn power differentials and that everything has to be subordinated to that. No, I um I'm interested in taking in lots of things because variety is fun, because there are a lot of things that are interesting because, you know, I could get hit by a bus tomorrow. Most of us die somewhere around 80. I want to get to it. So yeah, I have a lot of interests and linguistics, for example, my linguistics is not primarily based on issues of race or power or even sociology. My linguistics is actually rather nerdy stuff having to do with how languages change and not slang, but the grammar of the language and what happens when languages come together and not just black English. I talk about black English in the media, but my academic work is usually not about it. And then yeah, I've got other other interests. In real life, I am not this this scolding commentator about the way we talk about race in America. To an extent, to me, that's a very narrow topic. But with the way certain people behave about it, I feel like I have to stick up. Okay, so this, this series is, is sort of got the tag of the future of, and now we've understood your views and got the background to your thinking. How do you see the future of the debate about race in the U.S. and Europe? Yeah, um, I don't have a crystal ball, but I suspect at this point that there's a pushback against the excesses of the elect, as I call them, since roughly June 2020. It's me and various other people who have 
tried to speak up and say, hold it, folks. Yes, the world does need to be changed. But this business of clapping people in irons for not saying the right things and for not being extreme enough or not being angry enough has got to stop. I think that message is so obviously valid that it's going to start having some purchase. I see signs of people brave enough to stand up to these religious zealots when the zealots try to shout them down. And I think we might go back to a point where we're engaged in a tense but productive general consensus about where the United States needs to go. If maybe a certain critical mass of white people are more aware that there are systemic racist injustices, if you want to call them that, but those injustices, then yeah, that's that, that's a good thing. But what I'm looking for now is a pendulum shift back into the middle. I find myself nostalgic for a time that I wasn't enjoying either, say 2010, where there was emerging a kind of consensus that race problems were partly racism and then was partly that racism leaves cultural traits that a group is responsible for changing themselves, whether or not that's fair. That got batted out of the way by the nature of social media and certain cop killings. And then we had what happened last summer, two summers ago now. And social media, again, has a way of whipping things up that otherwise would not end up focusing so much and having such power. And we've got to fight against it because social media isn't going away. Unfortunately, I think that in the future, more of us are going to be used to being abused on social media to a certain extent, because if we don't get used to it, we're going to basically turn America into an Orwell scenario. I don't see that happening. So I think we have an interesting year or two coming. And as you look ahead, I mean, I mentioned at the beginning that gender is also a hugely controversial topic that creates a lot of anger. Do you see race becoming less angry a debate than the gender debate? How do you see that? That's an interesting question. I find it hard to say because I avoid commenting about gender issues because, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm just a man. And when I do race issues, I'm talking partly from my own experience or from watching very closely. I can't claim that with gender issues. But in terms of anger, to be quite honest, I would say that the kinds of violence and violation and abuse that the Me Too movement has been responding to is much more immediate and much more deserving of rage and high volume and utter take no prisoners indignation than anything that happens to black people in America of 2021. Now, I wouldn't say that in 1965, but in 2021, what happened to George Floyd was terrible. But as I've written in many places, the cops kill people of white, Latino, and black color all year long. They kill many, many more white men per year than black men. And there are issues of disproportion, but even those can be explained, for example, by poverty. So what happened to George Floyd happened to a white guy, almost the exact same circumstances, including it being recorded and the cops seeming to find it almost funny, that had happened to a white guy named Tony Timpa in 2016. We never heard a thing about Tony Timpa. Everybody in the world has now heard of George Floyd. And so I really do feel that race, there are issues, but the idea that nothing has changed except window dressing since the 1960s, it's a pose. It's a fiction. Everybody knows it's a vast exaggeration. I would have a hard time saying that to the people who complained about Harvey Weinstein or any number of cases that we've heard of where there's been a huge cultural shift in what we consider ordinary, which I think was was overdue. And I'm not just saying that to sound you know, properly non-sexist. It seems 
pretty open and shut to me. So yeah, that's my that's my flying blind on that question. Well, yes, it's interesting because I, I actually there's the Me Too movement which you just talked about. I was actually really thinking about transgender issues and uh, questions of gender in that way, which create you know, huge amounts of upset, passionate debate, anger, and and, and there seem to be parallels there too. Well, with the trans issue, I'm I'm new on it. I really haven't been paying enough attention to it to comment directly. But I think that on the one hand, there would be growing acceptance that there are people who wish to be a different sex and do that, and that we all need to understand that that is a legitimate way of being. But then on the other hand, I would not be surprised, and I've seen a little bit of, I must admit, a tendency to look at the way the black radical left deals with the rest of society and and the, the, the idea of creating a sense of crisis even where there isn't one. Not that there isn't ever one, but even where there isn't one. And I imagine that any movement would have to beware of modeling itself after those excesses. You model yourself after the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, and of course, before. And then after that, it's slow, steady work of eliminating the vestiges. But the idea that you pretend that no progress has ever happened, I don't think other groups should model themselves on that. And I hope that wouldn't happen with the trans movement. But I'm speaking without authority. Professor, thanks so much for talking to us today. Thank you.